Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. I'm Rachel Moss, the host, and this is my co-host, Mike Heitman. You can learn more about our podcast at www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. In today's episode, we're going to talk about barriers for new audiences. And more specifically, that opera has an image problem. A reputation for being expensive, long, and uptight. In today's episode, we'll examine these barriers for getting into opera and remove the false mask. Dun dun dun. What's the first thing we want to talk about? Well, I'm a huge proponent of making opera more for the everyday person. You know, I, I'm i not a stereotypical person who's in the arts in terms of how I think about the world and the kinds of people that I've associated with throughout my life. I think if you wanted to put a stereotype on somebody, I don't think I really fit that mold. You know, I grew up in the rural areas of the country, spent most of my life there even though I had major cities nearby. Uh, And so whenever I approach trying to make opera more accessible, I want to make it accessible for that person who just came off a 12-hour shift at some factory or on the farm, instead of it being more for the people who may be a little more culturally inclined, let's say. And so as I started doing more and more modernizing and trying to figure out how to do this, I, I found a lot of the same problems that kept coming up. And we'll, we'll address all of these today. And those are the language barrier, the cost, the length of the show, the plot lines and storylines within the shows, uh, and then also the fact that some people don't like to wear pants. Um, I'm one of those people. Yes. I mean, for all you guys know listening, I could be completely pantsless right now. I could be wearing pants. I'll let your imagination decide how it is. Let's first start with the language barrier, because I think that the language barrier is probably the biggest one in the United States. You know, as Rachel mentioned, opera has a huge image problem because they think it's elitist. And usually if you are, quote unquote, elite, that means that you're highly educated. You probably have a lot of money. And therefore, you more than likely have had some experience in foreign languages, especially the languages that we're talking about in singing. You know, unfortunately, there isn't as much opera that's been written in Spanish, which Spanish obviously is a major um, language in the United States. But in terms of at least the the shows that get done regularly, there isn't as much Spanish being done, which I, I think that's being changed. Absolutely. I mean, one, I think Sarzuela is becoming very, excuse me, popular in the U.S. And there are more operas being written about 
Spanish or Latin individuals. You know, the, I know that there's the Frida opera, and then there's also, oh, I just saw a thing. There's a one about a Cuban lady. Oh, I don't know about this one. I just saw it. Uh, anyways. In trying to connect with audiences that aren't already kind of in that mindset, you know, the everyday person, um, I think putting it into English, and not just English, but modern English, is extremely important because... As many singers know, there are usually, I would say, uh, usually is probably the right word for that. There usually is an, an English translation in most scores that you buy from the major um, publishers, at least. But they're all, for the most part, very old and antiquated. And so they don't. And just th- bad. Or just bad. Yeah, that's true. That's also an option. Um, and so. It's it's very hard for these modern audiences uh, to really latch onto it when our language just in our normal society is constantly changing from year to year, even decade to decade. Let so now we're gonna throw in while better than Italian, quote unquote, we're gonna throw in a translation from the fifties, and they're talking about all kinds of things that we don't even understand anymore because we don't use those words. You know, it just doesn't make sense. So. Mm-hmm. So putting it into English is definitely um, the the biggest barrier that you can take down right off the bat, and that that honestly disarms a lot of people because they they don't really like the prospect of going and listening to people yell at each other for three hours, but they really don't like the prospect of listening to people yell at each other for three hours and not even understand them. So. So that's uh, the number one thing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, we do come from similar backgrounds. I also grew up in an extremely rural area. I uh, grew up in Kansas and uh, lived in a town of 300 until I was about eight. Mm. And then I moved to a town of 10,000. Ooh, big city. Look at you. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I was exposed to opera as a kid, uh, you know, obviously through Looney Tunes, but I didn't see an opera until I was 15, and my first opera was Madame Butterfly. Oh, wow. I don't remember if I did any reading on the story beforehand. My voice teacher was in the show, so um, I had a connection to the show uh, via people. I was already someone who was a fan of foreign films at this time, so having to read subtitles or surtitles, not a big deal for me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's me. Everybody's different. I definitely agree that uh, we need more operas in English. It's interesting. You you mentioned your first show was Butterfly. I don't think my first actual show was until I was in one. I'm one of those Mm. people, which there are more of those than you would expect, actually. My my journey with coming to classical music, actually, I started listening to it a little bit in high school, but never did a show or anything like uh, like that. I did musicals, you know, because that's what you do when mm-hmm. you're in high school. But I remember I got a CD from a friend who was in band with me because I did band and choir. And he's like, you got to listen to this. He's the same kind of voice type as you and, and all this stuff. So I, I opened it up and it was Bren Turville's Handel Aria CD which I still listen to a lot. I, I love that CD. But it's so funny that... Uh, oh. I love his voice. I just want to like snuggle up in his voice. It's 
so cuddly. Yeah, but what's so funny with I have a love and hate relationship with Brent Turvel because, um, and it's nothing he ever did to me. I've never met him in person. It's nothing like that. Um, it, it's one of those things where as I've gone throughout my career. I'm like, no, why are you doing that? That's so dumb. Why are you making that choice? And then, of course, like two or three years down the road, I'm like, oh, well, that that's why he did it. And now I understand it. And now I'm a moron for, for thinking that he was an idiot. And also, who am I to say he's an idiot? He's the one who has the major career, not me. But that's another story. So, And I was also one of those people. And I came of age, of course, in the, the age of Napster. And another thing I uh, downloaded amongst all the rock and country albums was, and it was around the time that I was listening to Brent, I, I remember I downloaded some stuff of Havorostovsky. I was like, oh, this stuff is terrible. Why would I ever want to sing this? And he was singing Belcore's aria from Elixir. And now, of course, it's one that I've auditioned with so many times. It's just so, I'm such a human hypocrite, like. <laughs> like all over the place just just give me like two or three years with any person or anything i've said and i'm, I'm probably going to be a hypocrite about it but anyway so language of course big thing and like we talked about in the last episode you know surtiles and subtitles regardless of whatever the um language of the show that you're watching is in if they have any titles at all you will have it in english even if the the show itself is in english so Right. And I think that people who aren't familiar with the opera house and what in what it entails to go to an opera don't know this. They think that they're just going to be going to a show and people are going to be singing at them in a language they don't understand. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one, just getting the information out there to people that when you go to the show, you're going to have access to a word for word translation or a poetic translation either on the back of your on the back of the seat in front of you cuz that's how they do it at the met and you can actually choose what language you'd like it in yeah yeah i uh was at norma and i kept sw- switching between um english and german because mm-hmm. i speak both and i was getting slightly bored <laughs> is that because Oops. it's a translation <laughs> or because it's norma uh norma no. <laughs> it's, it's not that it's a bad opera. It's just long. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a slow progress. It's it's not... A, okay, I have to tell this story real quick. Okay. So there's one movie that I turned off after like an hour because the plot was so painfully slow, I couldn't finish it. And that was mm-hmm. Syriana hmm. with uh, George Clooney, right? Interesting. I just couldn't. Hmm. I, I could not get pulled into the story, and it was an hour, and I'm like, why am I still watching this movie? So I turned <laughs> it off. But I feel Norma can be a little slow. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I kept switching between German and English. Some houses have the subtitles on the seats in front of you and others uh this is i think what's more normal is to have surtitles which are projected at the top of the stage and don't worry they're big enough to read even at the back of the house all right so let's move on to a uh, cost so cost is another perception that is associated with opera that it's super expensive and again elitist because if it's expensive then only the elites can go One of the things that a lot of opera companies throughout the country have been doing is they've been giving more than just the traditional discounts that you would get, like military discount or student discount or or whatever, or rush tickets. Rush tickets are also a lot is something that a lot of companies do where you buy it the day of or Mm -hmm. a shortened period um, of time. But depending on what the show may be, they may have other things too. Uh, They also have a, a lot of companies are starting to 
have these groups like for example seattle opera has this thing called the bravo club which is uh for people 40 and under and so you buy to be a part of this you if i remember correctly you pay a due and then you get discounts on tickets and then there's also events that are associated with it so if you're single and ready to mingle and love opera it's a perfect place for you um, I'm not saying I don't that, think it's just for singles. <clears throat> yeah, I, I know it's not. But I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, if if you're under 40 and it's something that you really enjoy, um, it's something you should check out. And a lot of companies are moving towards that direction. You know, want to know, as I was explaining all of that, the one discount that's regular that they never give at the opera, the senior discount. Hmm. Like, really think about that. Why don't they give the senior discount? Because they'll lose so much money because it's all old people. True. Anyway, so the average price of a ticket for the opera, I would say for a decent seat, is probably anywhere from, it's around $30 probably, depending on the house that you go to. I mean, obviously, smaller companies and smaller houses, it kind of doesn't matter where you sit. And they're already their top yeah. end's even going to be lower anyway versus you know orchestra level at the Met or something like that, which is quite not affordable uh, for a lot of people. <clears throat> but just to give you some perspective, we have you know movie tickets are you know anywhere from ten to twenty dollars depending mm-hmm. on what kind of movie theater you're going to. You got yeah, what what city you're in obviously yeah matters yeah. too. You know, your your professional sports tickets for decent seats are usually at least 25. You know, and any concerts that you go to, even if they're for huge names right now, or even the people that have been around a while, like Celine Dion or um, Garth Brooks or Blake Shelton or something like that, they're going to be, even for the, like, quote-unquote, cheap seats, you're looking at at least 50, probably even more like $100 let alone if you're actually close or you want to um, get that extra behind the stage, backstage uh, experience, you pay more for that too. Yeah. In in comparison to all these things, $30 really isn't that much. And no. that's for a full show. Now, of course, some companies, if they're doing a shorter show, they may end up charging slightly less depending on the company and and what their mission is and stuff like that. I, I would definitely say that opera is affordable, especially when people, if we want to go even more extreme, they're willing to drop. I kid you not, I heard on the radio the other day that they're now starting to have loans. Like the, They set up this program where you can get loans to buy Super Bowl tickets. Wow. Yeah. If you're willing to take out a loan... Are they going to be like payday loans with really high interest? Oh, I have no idea. I didn't go that deep into it. They were just briefly talking about it. But I'm like, if you need to take out a loan to go to the Super Bowl, meaning that the tickets are probably anywhere from 1500 and up, like, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a problem. That's not an affordable thing for you. Again, $30. It, it's really not yeah. that terrible, and yeah, I totally agree. I mean, for thir- I don't go to the movies anymore. Um, I don't know; it just lost its sparkle for me. Maybe I'm ruined by opera and uh, anything that <laughs> doesn't involve live music, live singing, and yeah, amazing staging just doesn't do it for me. I guess yeah, it's a drug. <laughs> 
Although, I mean, to see something like, I guess this isn't technically um, a movie, but it's kind of hard. The one thing that is hard for opera, I think, is stuff like horror movies. Like, if they could have a legit horror opera and not have it just be Lucia stabbing herself all over the place, that would be really, really good. But it's hard. It would be good. I mean, I think that they probably exist. I mean, I can think of a couple off of my head. So, Marshner did one called De Vampire. Yeah, De Vampire. And, I mean, there are operas that definitely fit in to like Halloween-y. I don't know if they go straight for horror, but I think you run into the problem that previously operas had to pass censorship. So Mm -hmm. anything that gory wouldn't have gotten in. So, I mean, it would have to be modern. Oh, The Shining. Oh, yeah. The Shining is an opera. And I know that there's a couple new ones that are... Do you consider post-apocalyptic to be somewhat horror? Wait, say that again. Or do you consider post-apocalyptic to be under the horror Yeah. Oh, yeah, it definitely can be, yeah. Okay, so I know that there uh, are a couple new operas. Can't remember the names off the top of my head, but they fall under that. They're post-apocalyptic. Oh, okay. So. Well, cool. That that leaves us things to be seen. Yeah. Cost really the more that we can help bring that down while also not sacrificing quality if at all possible. Yeah, I think the problem that what really the barrier to this is that <laughs> I think opera companies don't like to necessarily advertise that they have these ticket prices um, because they're trying to stay afloat basically after the recession in 2008 Mm -hmm. Uh, the arts took a big hit and um, they get less funding from the government now than they used to and they have these ticket prices available because they do want to gain new audience members and make sure that they are serving everybody in society but you you know you won't see it posted on their front page hey we have 25 dollars rush tickets yeah or standing room only tickets well see i i always go back and forth about stuff like that because for me it's better to have a broader ticket base than hope for big Mm -hmm. donors or big tickets to Mm -hmm. sell like i i totally get what you're saying and I just think that companies, if they focused on, I'm not saying only promote the cheap seats, but like if you can mm-hmm. fill that entire cheap seat area and maybe have it bleed into the the mid range, versus hoping solely to sell out the the bigger ones when you more than likely won't, and then have it be scattered throughout the rest. I don't know. I think over time it's better to to have the broader coalition to use a buzzword I, of today. I mean, but absolutely. I mean, look at look at presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Yeah, he's raised a ton of money, and most of his donations are under thirty dollars. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you that's how you bring people in and you actually know that you're making a difference instead of being quote unquote bought by a few people. And this kind of goes into a, a different topic that we'll probably talk about at a later date, which is programming. You know, if you're trying to appease the needs of the people who buy the big tickets, they may be mm-hmm. of a certain age and or a certain taste. And so how yeah. are you going to appease them while also trying to build that smaller area or the, the lower ticket price people? I don't know. It's it's a difficult balance. But um, yeah, you can't just always go to the people who have the money and appease them. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Santia Diamants. They always put a smile on your face. They calm you when the storms of life hit. They didn't kill you after not using gloves while pumping gas, and instead offered Purell for your COVID-infested hands. You know you love them. 
What better way to show your love and appreciation for them than some bling from Santia Diamants, founded by European jewel mogul Dappertuto Offenbach in 1880. Santia Diamants has been the source for the finest quality jewelry in the whole world. To show our commitment to helping others during this trying time, we're having our pandemic sale with prices you haven't seen since 1917. For the chronic pessimist in your life, check out our doll collection of ear, nose, belly button, and toe rings. They are sure to brighten the day of even the most robotic people in your life. Looking for a classy, timeless gift for that special someone who hasn't found a better option? Our Belle Nuit line of necklaces and bracelets will bathe their desires for the pool boy for a few more months. And finally, our Livressa 50 karat diamond engagement rings will definitely win over even the shallowest of gold diggers. Don't let fear or the quarantine stop you from happiness. Put on your mask and gloves, grab that Trump check, and head on down to Santia Diamants, where we fascina and Atira all. Next is length of show. Now, most operas are at least an hour and a half, I would say, unless they're mm-hmm. specifically written as a one act and you're only doing it as a one act. And they can range anywhere for from that to how long is Siegfried is the longest, isn't it? Isn't it like five hours, something like that? I, I think it's close to that. Yeah, I mean, the ring, uh, the whole ring is over 20 hours total. Yeah. E- each one is around four hours, Siegfried being the longest of them. Yeah. 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 So that's a really long time for a person not only to invest in in a show, just in general, but if you're not used to the art form and stuff, that's a really long time. And again, if it's not cheap and it's uh, mm-hmm. not in your native language, it's going to be hard to get into that. Even though my devil's advocate argument would be, what about Lord of the Rings? What about all these other movies, The Irishman, you know, these movies that are super long, you'll sit through those, you know? Right, exactly. That's, I mean, that's what, I looked up like what the average length of a movie is now, and it's around 120 minutes. Um, Movies have gotten longer, actually. Back in the 50s, most movies were about an hour long. Yeah. So we've nearly doubled the length of a movie and guess what you don't get any intermissions in movies at least in the united states uh i went to a movie in germany and uh they have intermission and they bring concessions into the theater for you to buy so you don't even have to leave it's pretty awesome that is pretty cool could you imagine having concessions being brought into the opera house at intermission get your popcorn here so giovanni this giovanni is just like amazing right like you would never (laughs) never hear those things come out of the same area i mean i hate to break it to you but the one when our opera houses started that's actually how they were well we need to go back people to that. were talking and drinking and uh, they the thing is that people went to the opera more as a social event than to see these operas they uh and they'd go multiple times so they've seen the show at least you know half a dozen times or more so they go to be there they do enjoy the art i'm sure there's parts that you know they stop talking to watch but it's it's more of who's who when it began yeah Um, it's not like that anymore but yeah yeah. oh the one thing i was gonna say is um when it comes to bringing in new people and the length you know i'm a huge proponent as we kind of mentioned in the last podcast of shortening really i take a machete or chainsaw to these shows (laughs) not because i necessarily want to because i i do 
try to keep my favorite parts of shows in there. I do try to keep characters that I like that are relevant to the story that I'm that is already there, but also that I'm trying to create. The hardest one for me was Figaro to cut up, which ironically was my first one that I did because I really did not want to cut out Carabino. So, because Carabino is mm-hmm. one of my favorite roles that I will never sing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, <laughs> me either. I couldn't do it in terms of trying to get it down to an hour. Yeah. And having seen your show, it worked. Yeah. And so the thing is, is that the reason why I'm a huge proponent of cutting it down is one, I, when I watch opera, even my favorite shows, I fast forward through sections. Mm. So why would I make someone else <laughs> suffer, quote unquote, <laughs> through, through parts that I don't even watch myself? So <clears throat> there's that angle. But more importantly, everybody who has a Netflix or a Hulu or an Amazon Prime account that watches all these things on there, they will try out, try and watch the latest series that's coming out. And they'll give the pilot, however long it is, 20 to 50 minutes, they'll give it that amount of time to see if they like it. Yeah. So that's why I would always shoot for around an hour. Because if I take out the language barrier, if I cut it down to an hour, and because of the productions that I put together, they're cheaper to produce just in general. So that means the ticket cost is going to be low, lower, I should say. Mm -hmm. And then they're usually in non-traditional venues. So, and we'll get into this in just a second. You don't have to worry about being all fancy and dolled up if you don't want to. If I do all of that... And I create an engaging story and we have good quality singing and performing and you watch it and you still don't like it. Well, I'm sorry. My hands are clean. There's nothing I can do for you right now in terms of getting you to. It's just not the cup of tea. And that's all right. It's it's fine for people not to like opera. Hey, um, admittedly, I don't really like country music. There, there, There are a few greats that I'll listen to. But overall, I never liked it i i like i like bluegrass more i'm a bluegrass person anyways getting off topic now um yeah. you know <laughs> when when i have people come to me and ask me like what's the first opera you should see i tend to do my my suggestions are usually for operas that aren't aren't long that are on the shorter side and typically um comedic operas yeah and and i say that because yeah, it's funny because a lot of people a lot of people actually suggest uh, seeing Figaro as their first show, but I don't think they understand. If there's no cuts in Figaro, it's four hours long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry to break it to you, Wagner was not the person, first person to write four-hour operas. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. Mozart. <laughs> yeah, actually it reminds me, a while back I went to Cozy at, at Seattle Opera with yeah. um, my girlfriend. Sorry, at- I... I don't like Cozy at all. Yeah. Well, that's a whole different discussion. But uh, I remember um, I went with my girlfriend at the time, and this was her second show that she had seen at Seattle Opera, the first show being Barber, I think. And she loved Barber, but we go to Cozy. I had never seen Cozy live. Uh, I love the music, but even I, about halfway through the last part of the show, I'm looking at my figurative watch on my wrist and I'm like, Wolfie, let's get to the point. Come on, dude. Like this yeah, is just it's, taking it's forever. It's a long opera. Yeah. It's long. <clears throat> and, you know, if we want to talk about our side of it as a singer, like why why subject yourself to that many repeats if you can take them out? It's just vocal energy that you don't need to actually spend. But that's a different discussion. But yeah, some operas can be very long, um, which is why I think shortening them 
whenever possible is always a, a win. As long as it's crafted in a way that is just really well done. Because sometimes you do cuts and they just don't make sense. Yeah, I mean, like, if you cut out the entire <laughs> plot device, I mean... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've seen All it right. happen, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, of course. The next thing we'll talk about is a lack of connection to the story. Now, on the one hand, we can't fault these shows because they were written when they were written. We can't be mad that Mozart wrote about, you know, the times of courtly stuff and be annoyed that they don't have it doesn't speak to you because that's when the dude wrote it. That's when he was alive. I mean, honestly, it's it's fascinating, though, to, to you know, if. Uh, let's put it this way as an american we didn't grow up understanding how the monarchy works right mm-hmm. and this culture of royalty it's not something that most of us are familiar with so i i think shows like that are actually kind of fascinating mm-hmm. to see the the power plays that go on and just look at look at shows on netflix and what what's super popular tons of period pieces are very popular downton abbey was incredibly popular yeah it was i mean We can make that argument, but on the other hand, if we want to take Figaro again, for example, there are so many themes in that show that transcend all time periods, all cultures, all, you know, so many different things, you know, jealousy, envy, well, murder for one actually isn't in that show, but that's in many other shows, you know, lust, power, money, you know, being sly. It's all there. You know, all all that stuff. And so to say that there isn't something that a person can connect to in their modern life with the operas that are out there uh, is kind of disingenuous, in my opinion. But at the same time, we can do a, a better job of presenting them in a way that is more, they can connect more with it, which is why when we modernize them or just do stories that are more applicable, mm-hmm. uh, it, it always turns out better. You know what I want to see? I wonder if it exists. I want to see a 1984 be an opera. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, there is a 1984 opera. Look at that. My dreams come true. Yep. I'll have to check there it out. There you go. I remember there's a video online. I don't know if it's still available, but it used to be Simon Keenly side and some soprano. I don't know. There are a dime a dozen. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Doing the love duet from it. I don't know if it's still up anymore. It's from probably 15 years ago or something like that. Cool. Yeah, I think I, a lot of it is either we have to find ways to present these stories in ways that appeal to modern audiences or we have to advertise it correctly right because some of it's just that people don't know what shows they'll like and even where to start advertising is a huge huge part of it and one thing that companies can do in their especially in their materials that they have when you get to the opera which i guess if you're already at the opera that means you bought the ticket anyway Mm -hmm. they can show how especially if the music has been done and other things like shawshank redemption or you know Mm -hmm. stuff from carmen is all over the place yeah in modern culture, commercials and and all kinds of stuff, showing them that yeah, this you've heard this music before. It's it's a way for people to connect to it. Also, one of the things with just doing modern opera, not revamping it, but actually the new written stuff, is that um, they can do stories that are about now. Like for example, they had a transgender opera that was written what three years ago, four years ago, and that thing is just exploding. Yeah, that's um, as one. As, yeah, as one. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, as one is a huge one. That's 
that's been done. And we're seeing these stories that have never been told before because they were either taboo in our society or we're just facing them now. And so that's that's a great way for people to connect to the art form, whereas in previous generations, they weren't able to. All right. So the last part of it is uh, talking about societal perception. And we've kind of touched on this as we've gone along, the whole idea of it's stuffy, it's for rich white people or whatever. And that's just not the case. Like Rachel mentioned, it was originally, the opera itself was a social outing. Well, I mean, like, uh, yes, the very beginning of opera started with, the first opera was commissioned by a king. So it did start with the aristocracy Mm -hmm. and royalty in the early 1600s. And by the time we got to uh, Mozart, it already had become something for the people. That's 150 years. That's really not a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Or not even 150, less than 125. It's really, really not that long of a time. And it's already become an art form for the people. And when I mean the people, I mean for the masses. Uh, And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know what, it's been over 200 or almost 200 years since then. And we still have this perception that opera is only for rich people. Rack my brain about this. How do we break this stereotype? What is the best way to do it? Probably nudity just in the audience. Everybody just comes naked (laughs) because you there's no frills. There's no gimmicks. Everybody's all the same. We all got the same parts. Wow. I think that that's... that's No. No, what you got to do is... Again, like you've mentioned, marketing is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. And and like we mentioned in the last episode, having these in-between, the not the top-tier companies, because I think it's just harder for them to do this, but you have these other smaller, more mobile companies that can take opera to the everyday general masses. You know, Opera on Tap is a great organization, an example of that. Right. Where you can break down barriers and show people that, hey, you know, this is actually a pretty cool thing. If we can get people to understand that it's for the people, it's these stories that are timeless, these same themes and all that stuff are in all the other literature and media that you engage with. Uh, it just happens to be done in a heightened way, you know, with singing and orchestra and, and all that stuff. It's a lot. E- I think it's a lot easier for people to understand where you're coming from. But it is. I ha- I heard it once said that opera is is a um, art form that you have to quote unquote invest in. Now that's not necessarily money, but in order to understand it, you have to take time to listen to. Uh, like the way that the singing is because it is different than musical theater Uh, it's different obviously than pop music Uh, and so you have to get used to it you have to put a little bit of effort in but if we as as people who are producing it can break down all those things that help people shy away from it i guess help isn't really the right word that that push people away because they think it's going to be Oh, well, you know what? I'm so busy with my job and my kids and the fact that I can't pay down my student loan debt or my mom is sick and I don't know what I'm going to do with her and and all this stuff. We if we can help them understand that this will actually Mm -hmm. help you. The perception is not that it's for just these other people Mm -hmm. that aren't you. That's how you do it. I think we need an ad campaign. Let's make a super pack. A super pack. There we go. Then we can donate, have people donate as much money as they want because it's super. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, there's a couple other notes that, that I have in here that, that kind of will dovetail with stuff we've already talked about that we haven't touched on yet. And that is, I'm a huge proponent of 
minimalist mm -hmm. opera. And I didn't really understand this until one of our one of our friends and colleagues at Seattle Opera, Dan Miller, he was the director of a show that I was in before I even came to Seattle. Dan is a, a wonderful and genius um, director, yeah. I think, and he's great to work with. But I did Giovanni, the first time I did Giovanni, um, we did it in southeastern Washington. We did it basically with a black stage and like two or three yeah. black chairs. Like that's it. Yeah, I think it's definitely doable. I I don't have a problem with minimalism. I, it just depends on, honestly, for me, what show. Well, I'm just, I think that for some people, though, they're, they're like, well, this isn't enough. This isn't engaging. But what it does is it forces both the audience and the singer to listen and watch more because they can't hide behind sets. They can't yep. hide behind all these different things. And so it gets down to pure communication. That is what opera is unlike anything else. When you have raw communication and you combine all the different elements that are in it, it's so much more powerful than any other medium. Mm -hmm. And that's what, what just blows it out of the water for me. Yeah. And in, and in conjunction with that, with minimalist stuff, you can put them up in non-traditional and smaller venues, True. which helps that whole process even more. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I think the future of opera is going to... Um, really go we're, we're never i don't think we're never going to lose these major companies mm -hmm. sure they'll have financial difficulties but somehow they seem to always save themselves in terms of effective opera in the 21st century the ones that really make the most difference in bringing people in engaging new audiences that wouldn't have ever considered it otherwise it's going to be with these smaller productions and these cheap uh, more affordable, I should say, versions in English. I absolutely agree. I think that opera evolved and opera houses got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in some instances, I think certain opera houses are too big. You know, after they, they kind of reach their own personal peak for that particular opera house, they've had trouble filling seats. If you're doing non-traditional venues, no, it doesn't mean a non-traditional venue could be um, an outdoor park, an outdoor arena where you could have thousands of people gathering have some yep. logistical things to figure out but you're not confined inside of a, a set space and i think that this is a future evolution or current evolution of opera um, that we're seeing play out yeah totally i don't know why i just thought of this but the whole uh, connecting with audiences and moving it forward in this new way. There's a lot of companies, one in particular that I'm thinking of right now is the Pacific Opera Project yep. in L.A. Yep. They they do a lot of innovative things. I think they do it in a regular theater, but they've done like a Super Mario version of Magic Flute. Of right? the Magic Flute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we as producers can find ways that connect with audiences, especially these younger kids, like I would say, you know, whenever I wrote shows, I was looking for 40 and under. Mm -hmm. So if you were to throw something into the Hunger Games, like a Hunger Games version of it, and it was well done. Now, don't get me wrong, you can go very awry in modern takes on things as yeah. both Rachel and I have experienced in our careers. And we discussed a little bit last episode. Yep. You know, sometimes it works and sometimes not even close. But then again, I guess everything is relative, right? Mm -hmm. Because I may think a show didn't work, but someone else does, you know? They love it. So yep. it is what it is, as they say. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we have uh, talked about all the barriers and, and ways that we think either they're not really barriers 
or ways that the opera community, that being individuals or companies, can alter their strategies and bring in new audience members. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your thoughts and requests, so leave us a comment below. For more information about the podcast or for extras, check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. You can help support the creation of this and much more content for as little as $3 a month. Like and subscribe to our channel and also follow us on Instagram at opera unbound to stay updated. Ciao.